Uh, good morning, St. Andrews. Let's pray. Now, Father, calm our hearts and open our ears. Father, help us hear what you're saying this morning. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever got more than you're expecting. A few years ago, uh, we did a surprise birthday for my granddad. Uh, you might have been involved in something like this, but the way we set it up was that he was going out uh, for dinner with uh, my nana for his birthday. So they went out, got into the car, started off to the restaurant that had a fake booking or no booking at all. And then she said, oh, I've forgotten something. And they, they turned around and came back. That would give us time to sneak in, to get the streamers organized, to hide and be ready to give him a surprise birthday when he got back. See, he was already looking forward to a birthday celebration, but his expectations got blown out of the water when he got home. Now, arguably a nice dinner with his wife is actually better than takeaway Chinese with some ratbag grandchildren. But nonetheless, his expectations for the night were suddenly hugely expanded. Something similar happens in this chapter of Daniel that we're looking at today. Daniel is looking forward to the restoration of Jerusalem, an, an earthly city. That's what he prays for. But his expectations are hugely expanded by the answer that God gives him. And that's exactly what he needs. He needs an expanded hope. See, expectations for the future, hope, can function in, in two ways, I guess, depending on where you're at in life. If things are going pretty well, then a decent hope helps you not to get content, not to get too stagnant and to keep you straining forward towards reality. But if things are very much not going well, then a decent hope just keeps you going. In either scenario, you need hope. You need a picture of the future so that you can live your life now in light of the future. And in this chapter, God gives Daniel and gives his people reading it, uh, including us, a really great hope. There are two broad sections uh, we're looking at today. Uh, we've got Daniel's reading and praying, which shows us the basis and certainty of hope. And then we've got God's answer, which shows us the real scope of hope. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, please do make sure it's open there to Daniel chapter nine. And we begin with uh, Daniel's reading. The basis of hope is God's word. See, this chapter is set in the first year of uh, Darius the Mede, which is quite possibly another name for Cyrus, which would set this chapter perhaps a year after Daniel's vision in chapter eight. So Daniel here is around 80 towards the end of his life. And here at the beginning of chapter nine, well, it says that Daniel gets a vision that tells him that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Wait, no, it doesn't. It does not say that Daniel gets a vision. He doesn't get a vision. What it does say is that Daniel understands from the scriptures. See there in verse two. See, Daniel is a Bible reader. Um, I heard that John Chapman, the Sydney evangelist, uh, once said, if the phone's ringing, you don't stick your head in the microwave. Meaning God's spoken to us right here, right in front of us in the Bible. There's no point looking somewhere else. And that's what Daniel knew. 
Visions may have happened to Daniel, but he could always find God in his word. And so Daniel's been reading. He's been reading passages, uh, perhaps like Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11, which says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. There it is, Daniel, well-versed, no doubt in these prophecies, realizes that at this point in time in Babylon, well, the time in Babylon is towards its end. 70 years here is probably not an exact number, but a way of talking about a, a lifespan. And as Daniel nears the end of his life, he realizes that if God is true to his word, then time must just about be up. Hope must just about to be here, must just about be here. And the hope that Daniel had was for uh, the once great city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, for the people to return and live there in peace, dwelling with their God. That's something to look forward to. That's something that's better than Babylon. As, as comfortable as it might be for Daniel, as he nears the end of his life, this hope makes Daniel dissatisfied. It makes him not settle for ultimately what's not good. Do you see something better than life now, as comfortable as life might be? If not, then you're misguided. You're missing reality. Our hope's not that we'll get back to an earthly city like Daniel, we'll get to that. But Daniel saw something more because he bases his hope on what he reads in God's word. He bases his hope on God's promise. And he has confidence that it will be fulfilled because of God's glory. Let's have a look at Daniel's prayer. Uh, Daniel's praying gives him the certainty of hope in God's glory. Have a look there how he starts uh, in verse four. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is great and awesome. He's powerful and he's in control and he remains true to what he says. God is able and trustworthy. Praise him for that. But if that's the extent of God's character, if that's all we know about him, then there's a problem. God entered into a covenant with his people when he saved them from Egypt. Uh, it was a good covenant for their good. He'd be their God they'd be his people. And God perfectly keeps his side of the bargain, but the people do not. And that's what we see Daniel acknowledging as his prayer continues uh, in verses five to 11. But see, for example, in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. And God had always said as part of the covenant that if the people broke it, then and this is, this is from Deuteronomy 28, then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. And that's what had happened. The consequences had caught up with God's people. That's what Daniel acknowledges. Look at verse 14 there, for instance. 
The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. And yet Daniel dares ask something more of God because seemingly at odds with the strict terms of the covenant, God has made other promises too, like the one that uh, Daniel was reading in Jeremiah. See, there's something greater than fairness at play here, greater than justice, better than justice. It's mercy. Mercy driven by something beyond the mere stipulations of an agreement, but something that's more important, something deeper, glory for God. See, God chose Israel for himself. He chose Jerusalem for himself. And in doing so, he tied up their fate with the glory of his name. See, a broken people reflects poorly on God. An abandoned city that he calls his own causes disrespect for his name. And see, the principal reality in this world is, thank God, not justice. It's God's glory. And so Daniel's prayer culminates there in verse 19. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. See, Daniel cries out for forgiveness for him and his people and for restoration a second chance. And he appeals to God based on the glory of his name, the glory of God. That's the animating principle at the heart of the universe. That's the basis for Daniel's hope. That's the principle that overrides the fairness of the covenant. And it's a beautiful thing that the one aim of this place, the reason behind it all, the, 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 the purpose for which I woke up this morning, the purpose of everything somehow is the glory of God, the magnification of his goodness, of his character, of his beauty, and how great it is that God is a good God. Imagine for a second that you're um, a prisoner in one of the California prisons just a couple of months ago uh, before COVID started. You've done something really wrong and you're serving your time as you should be according to the law. That's fair. But then COVID hits and things change. On compassionate grounds, um, you're set free to, to prevent further overcrowding and spread of the virus in prisons. See, a higher principle than that of, of a policy of incarceration has come into play. See, the higher principle of our world is the glory of the good God of the universe. This then is what Daniel bases his petition on. See, in Daniel's reading, we see the basis for his hope, uh, which is uh, God's word, his promises. In his prayer, we see why he's confident because of God's glory. And then we see God's answer. God's answer, which blows out Daniel's expectations for the hope. It shows the real scope of hope. Have a look in verse 20. It says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight. See, God answers prayer. And to be fair, this is an abnormal response, an, an angel coming to you. 
uh, one not to be expected all the time, but God hears each prayer and he answers. And the answer to Daniel's prayer, which is about the restoration of Jerusalem, is an explanation of what that restoration is going to be like. And with this passage, uh, we see uh, a prophecy given really in the apocalyptic genre. Uh, The angel gives Daniel a vision. And we need to be aware of uh, a feature of the apocalyptic genre, uh, that numbers can be used symbolically, just as, as characters in the prophecy can be. And a feature of of prophecy too, uh, the possibility of multiple horizons of fulfilment. Uh, But we'll we'll get to that as we look at it. First, see how it starts in verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. So Gabrielle talks about seventy-sevens. Now, some people uh, read this as 70 weeks, uh, seventy-sevens others as 70 times seven years, and then try to calculate when this period sort of stretches from and to. Um, you have to work out where, uh, what, what word Gabriel is talking about there in verse 25 and what event in history indicates the end of this period. It's, it's very difficult um, to nail down with certainty um, particular events. But I don't think that's quite how these numbers are functioning here. I already mentioned how even Jeremiah's 70 years uh, seem to be symbolic for a lifetime rather than meaning exactly seven zero years. And Daniel has been asking whether this 70 years is up and whether the time for uh, restoration uh, for Jerusalem is here. And so the angel replies with an interpretation of what those 70 years mean. It is true that in 539 BC, after about a lifetime of exile, uh, Jeremiah's 70 years, Cyrus the Great issued an edict for the exiles to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the message here is that there's much more than that involved. That we're not talking just of 70 years, but 70 times seven. Helpful parallel, perhaps, is the way that Jesus uses similar numbers. His disciples ask him, how many times should I forgive uh, my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven times. By which he doesn't mean count up exactly 490 times and on the 491st time someone sins against you, cease to forgive them. No, no, he means keep on forgiving, offer complete forgiveness. So the uh, seventy-sevens is not a specific number of years or weeks or days, but rather a complete time period uh, for a complete and absolute restoration to take place. In verses 25 to 27, uh, there is some further detail about what these 77s will look like. Uh, Now, these verses are are some of the most difficult to interpret in, in all of Daniel. And uh, commentators vastly vary on on the different ways you can take this. But here's here's a way that I think fits well. You see there that the 77s are broken up into a number of stages. See in verse 25, you've got the time being split up into seven sevens and 62 sevens. Uh, So we've got a number of different stages. Stage one, seven sevens. 
This looks to be uh, the start of the return to Jerusalem for uh, some of the exiles from Babylon and the rebuilding process. Uh, This came with the edict in 539 BC, possibly even the same year as this prophecy. Uh, But Daniel doesn't seem to be among those exiles who returned. An anointed one there could refer to a number of people, perhaps Joshua the priest or Zerubbabel, the leader of that rebuilding process, who are both referred to in these terms. And you can read more about them uh, and, and the process in Ezra and Nehemiah. Then it seems you've got another stage, stage two, 62 sevens. Uh, there are times of trouble after the return to Jerusalem in the sixth century. And we can see that from Ezra and Nehemiah as well. Uh, the neighboring peoples weren't happy. And later, as we've seen in other weeks, looking at Daniel, Alexander the Great, if you must call him that, swept through with various beasts in charge of different parts of the empire. And after that, you've got an anointed one who will be put to death and have nothing. Then it seems we have another stage, stage three, uh, another seven, which is broken into two. And the features of this stage are a ruler who destroys the city and the sanctuary, who puts an end to sacrifice and offering, and sets up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, who is this this ruler, this character? It could find fulfilment in uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Seleucid ruler who uh, set himself up as an alternate God, who desecrated the temple in Jerusalem uh, in around 167 BC, who, who Jono spoke of last week and who we'll speak of in the coming weeks. In that case, the anointed one who was put to death could have been uh, Onias III, the high priest who was deposed by Antiochus and, and replaced by his, his own uh, preference for priest. Now, because the details of, of chapter 8 of Daniel and chapter 10 seem to point to Antiochus, I think he was the ruler who's referred to here in the, in the first case. But this description also uh, fits for another man, to, uh, fits for Titus, a Roman who marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, which has, has never yet been rebuilt. He similarly dis- desecrated the temple. In this case, the anointed one uh, could have been Jesus himself. I think there's a secondary fulfilment here because Jesus uses the language of abomination that causes desolation um, in his own teaching, uh, where he seems to be pointing to this moment in 70 AD. But I think there's also another fulfilment Because have a look again at verse 24. Verse 24 is basically a summary of all that will happen. It's the big view of the 77s period. Look what it says is going to happen. Transgression will be finished. Uh, There'll be an end to sin, atoning for wickedness, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing or, or fulfilling vision and prophecy, anointing the most holy place. So the angel is not talking about a mere restoration of a people to a city here, where they will inevitably again break the covenant and the cycle will repeat again. No, this seems much more absolute than that. He's pointing beyond Jerusalem, beyond the temple to something greater, everlasting righteousness, an end to transgression. That will ultimately not come to Daniel's people through the temple and the city 
but through Jesus Christ. Gabriel is talking about a complete and total restoration. Though the Israelites may return to Jerusalem after Jeremiah's 70, well, there's something much bigger, much better to hope in. It's a hope that will certainly come when the complete time, the 77s, is over. Can you imagine that? No more sin. No more times when we do stuff that we really don't want to, that we hate ourselves for. No more times when we're hurt by other people's sin. A world devoid of evil, filled with good. A time when each and every one of God's good promises is complete. And a time when the most holy place is anointed. That is when God truly dwells with his people, when we're home. What a hope. It's like a a surprise party with all your favourite people when all you expected was a dinner out. But before the 77s are complete, the vision tells us there is suffering, suffering before victory. The pattern we've seen again and again in Daniel. Well, why? Why great suffering for God's people? Why opposition to God? Why does he allow it? Well, for that, we need to return to Daniel's prayer. See, it's the same answer as to the other question that didn't make sense. The question, why does God have mercy even when it's not fair? Well, his glory. Why do God's people suffer? Somehow, his glory. How does that make sense? Well, Jesus is the key to showing us how God can have mercy and still be fair. And he's the key to showing us how suffering can be for God's glory. Read with me uh, in Philippians chapter 2 that we had read earlier. Verse 8 says, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, great suffering, unjust suffering, uh, on behalf of covenant um, covenant breakers, that's what Jesus undertook. That's how God has mercy, by suffering himself. And here's the result, skipping down to verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Get that, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the Son, suffered to bring God's mercy, but this turnaround from defeat to victory brought God glory. This is the thing, we, like Daniel, like his people, we are sinful. We need to cry out for his mercy. But if we trust in Jesus, then God has already had mercy on us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Christians don't suffer any judgment. Christ has suffered for us. We have already returned from the exile. And yet suffering continues. Evil still exists in our world. How is God glorified through suffering? Well, it's it's hard to say. Here are some ideas. Perhaps it's through the growing perseverance uh, that you show through suffering. Perhaps it's the parts of your character that are exposed and sharpened. 
Perhaps it's the opportunity for others to show kindness. Perhaps we actually can't really tell sometimes, but we know that somehow it's for God's glory. And we know that it will certainly have an end point when the 77s are completed. Antiochus came to an end. Titus came to an end. So will everyone who sets themselves up against God and his people. And we know that on that day, there is amazing hope, bringing in of everlasting righteousness. See, Daniel's hope is based on God's word. He's a Bible reader. Daniel's confidence in his hope is based on God's glory. And God greatly expands the scope of his hope. That's what we need to. See, Daniel read Jeremiah and uh, that's what led him to pray. We've been reading Daniel this morning and let's let that lead us to pray on some similar themes. So let's pray as we finish. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You are so good. You are so powerful. You created everything. We are not good like you, like the Israelites, like Daniel. We know we have sinned. We know that day after day we rebel against you. We don't think of you. We set up our lives how we want them to be. We know that even since you've rescued us and we try to live our lives with Jesus as Lord, that we fall and we sin. We know that you don't owe us anything, that in fairness, you should punish us as we've decidedly not brought glory to your name. But you, Lord, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who made a name for yourself as the God of rescue, as the God of victory over death, in keeping with your righteous acts, forgive us. Bring more glory to your name by your mercy on us. Thank you that you've atoned for wickedness. Finish transgression once and for all. Put an end to sin. Lord, help us live for you. Thank you for the great hope that you show us. Help us strain forwards towards it. In difficult times, help us trust that an end to the difficulty will come and that you've got it for your glory. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Bring to fulfilment everything you've said. Make all of this world, the new heavens and the new earth, holy with your presence. Come, Lord Jesus, for the sake of the name of God the Father, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Amen.